Well, hello there. It is good to see you again, and welcome back to Your Money and a Cup of Joe. I am your host and moderator, Ryan Ruff. Great to be with you all again today. And as always, I'll be joined by my right-hand man and the star of our show, Mr. Joe Kaleo of UBS. We're going to be diving into another wealth management-related discussion today, and we also have a special guest joining us here in today's episode. I'll mention who that is in just a moment. But to frame things up for today's discussion, you've heard in prior episodes, Joe and I talk about the trillions of dollars that are going to be passed down from one generation to the next here in this lifetime. Well, in addition to those trillions of dollars passing down among family wealth, well, we also want to look at the other side of the coin when it comes to businesses. So there are about 8 million private companies that are going to be changing hands in the United States over the next 15 years. And some business owners, you know, they're going to need some help doing that. This is a complicated process. We've touched on this in different ways, shapes, and forms in past episodes, but there's a lot of moving pieces in that transfer of ownership for a business. And, you know, there's eight ways to exit that business, both for being internal for being external. We've covered that in a past episode, but we're going to be double clicking a little further today into it. And we're going to be talking about how you want to exit the way that's best for you. That's really the focal point of today's discussion. And to join us in today's discussion is a special guest that we have. It's Mr. Larry Starks. Larry is the senior managing director over at Waterview Investment Banking, and he has helped hundreds of companies and corporate leaders that have gone through this transition of exiting their business, passing it off to the next generation, so on and so forth. But before you say hi to Larry, let's go ahead and bring on the man of the hour, Joe. Say hi, Joe. It's good to see you this morning. How are you doing, sir? Ryan, great to see you. Glad everybody's here. Get your cup of Joe. Let's settle in for a good conversation and a cup of coffee. How about that, right? I, I love it. I'm, I'm armed to the teeth over here. Uh, so, Joe, you, uh, you know, we, we wanted to bring Larry on for the deep dive here into today's discussion surrounding business ownership and making sure that that exit process is done the best way for that owner. Before we get into the nitty or gritty of everything with Larry, why don't you share with our audience just how you got to know Larry on a personal and professional level and, and really why you wanted him to be here today. Yeah, and I'm glad he's here. Larry, glad you could join us. I've known Larry for quite some time in my professional career. I've been doing this almost 30 years. He looks a little bit younger. He's actually a little older. Don't let him fool you. He looks great, though, but uh, we've been friends and colleagues for a long time, longtime investment banker. And so this is the guy that I like to turn to when I've got questions, when I've got a business owner who's thinking about succession planning and how do we take that next step? What are some of the things to think about? We want to go through some of the things that Larry and I, certainly he experiences this every day, some of the things that I've experienced with Larry and with our business owners. So Larry, I'm glad you're here. Thanks for taking time to join us. Well, Joe, thanks for the invite. And Ryan, uh, good to spend time with you guys uh, this morning and, and really appreciate the opportunity just to talk through the issues that fa face many, many business owners. Of course, of course. Well, guys, let's let's start from a high level and then we'll kind of get a little more granular as the conversation goes on. Joe, I'll, I'll let you open up this first question and then Larry, of course, we'll get some color from you. Plain and simple, why do owners really sell their companies in the first place? Why are they interested in transitioning out of that ownership position? Ryan, there are many reasons why, but I think near the top of that list is often kind of the age, health, time answer, right? They start getting to that age in their 50s and 60s, and they start thinking about slowing down, or they are slowing down. They may have some health issues somewhere along the way, or oftentimes they're 
work, you know, they're living to work early on in their lifetime, but then they're working to live later on in life where they begin to say, you know, I'll gladly pay to work on early on in their career, but now they want that to come back and spend more time with family and friends. I think that's one of the biggest, if not the biggest item early on. But Larry, I know there are several other reasons that people will look to make a transition out of their company. Joe, there are, but I would tell you, I just have to reinforce what you said because it is dead on. One of my favorite lines from one of my clients ever, it's a guy named Fred Parks. And when I met him, he said to me, he said, Larry, when I was young, I was willing to trade the time for the money. But at my age now, I want to trade the money for the time. So there was just a shift in his life. And it really was an age thing. And it happens differently. It happens at different ages for everyone. For some people, that happens at 50 years old. For some, it's 60. For some, it's 70. And for some, it's after that. I've actually had people buy companies I was selling. I was selling, yeah, that were over 80 years old, right? So that's someone who was still... In that first phase, they were willing to trade, you know, the time for the money. They still wanted to make the money. But what you said about age, health, and again, time, what I think, while business owners don't think of it this way, when they hit those stages where they decide they want a little different balance, what's really embedded in that is their desire to de-risk their lives. And although they don't, again, often think about it this way, when you own a private company, very often 80% of your net worth is tied up in that private company. And that's a huge concentration of risk. So uh, again, they don't often think of it this way, but it's the truth. They just, they, in, they in, know internally that it's time for them to change that risk profile a bit. And then sometimes you'll see business owners that react to competitive market changes. So let's say they've had a nice small company. It's been growing rapidly. You know, what's wonderful about our free market economy in the U.S. is that it invites competition. Anytime you have, you're making outsized profits and growing really well, somebody's going to take notice and decide that's a good business to get into, which again, creates competition and over time competition will drive down margins. And that's just part of the, that's just the nature of being in business, I think, in our country. What, unfortunately, what some business owners do is they ride that a little too long. And when they have some real negative change out in the marketplace, they react by thinking, okay, time to sell. So that will drive people to sell on occasion. I would just offer that that's not the best time to try to sell. Sure. And sure. we'll talk and about that later. Yeah, yeah, Larry, you mentioned not being the best time to sell. I want to kind of take that as a nice transition point into my next question. And and that is, look, Joe and I talk a lot about different strategies and solutions that are, you know, you know, we would encourage folks to utilize within their financial world. But equally as important in talking about the good strategies and solutions, we also want to talk about the mistakes to avoid. So, Joe, I'll let you kind of kick this one off. Uh, what are some of those key mistakes, Joe, that business owners make sometimes when it comes to selling their companies? And it's these mistakes that, that can you know, set them back maybe a little bit or, or not allow them to achieve the desired outcome that they had hoped for in the first place. Ryan, let's set the stage in the mistake category, right? First, 70% of all businesses never sell. They never get to the point of being able to sell. And then four out of five that do sell 
have regrets 18 months or sooner after selling. And there are several reasons that contribute. And those are the mistakes that some of the mistakes that we're talking about here, right? Why? Because business owners are so used to being in control, so used to being successful, they often think, one, I can handle this on my own. That's a big mistake. And I've seen it time and again that people who have not taken the advice, and I can think of an owner that's still a client today, but regrets going in alone and selling their company and missed it, missed a debt that could have been caught had they gone through the steps that we suggested. And they still come back to me and say, I wish you would have pushed me harder. That's motivation for me to help business owners going forward that are thinking about selling to follow steps because now I've learned I didn't push that business owner hard enough. That's one. Two, the owner assumed that the buyer that they have will love the business the same way they do, right? And that they're going to love the people or the assets or the revenue, that they're going to appreciate everything in the same way that they've got it currently structured. And look, oftentimes there's changes right after a buy, right? For the buyer, they're going to change something. They see some intrinsic value or they see something that's automatically going to change. And the owner is surprised by those changes. Larry, I know you've seen some things along the way as well. Tell us about them. Yeah, you know, probably one of the biggest things I see re repeatedly is where the, the seller is pretty sure they know who the buyer is. And and typically, typically the sellers believe, I mean, their perspective on who might buy are competitors and sometimes customers or just other people they see in and around the market. And and that's just a very limited view of who the buyers might be. Uh, and over the years, I, I remember one company in particular, it was a company that made a, a specific conveyor type system. And the owner was 83 years old. He hired us to sell a company for him. We went broadly to market the way we do, but he was absolutely convinced that this international company with whom he had interfaced over the years, he was absolutely convinced that they were the buyer. That particular buyer never even, we contacted them half a dozen times, uh, ultimately even disclosed the name of the company and they weren't interested at all. So it was a great example of, he was sure that was who the buyer was. That, that entity wasn't interested at all. And ultimately, by the way, we sold that company to a firm that our client had never even heard of. So they're just very limited in who they think the buyers are who are going to be the highest paying buyers. Larry, how about properly prepared financial statements? We hear yeah. that all the time. Let's talk about financial statements. Yeah, that that's a uh, that is a significant issue. Uh, as a matter of fact, we're in the middle. We were engaged earlier this year by a company. And let me say this: uh, the entire merger and acquisition market works off of accrual basis. What are called so accrual versus cash, two methods to do accounting. You've got to have your financial statements uh, prepared using accrual methods. And then you also want them to be what is called GAP compliant. GAP is an acronym that stands for generally accepted accounting principles. And the entire merger and acquisition world works off of, again, accrual basis, GAP compliant financial statements. They need to be accurate, and that's what that helps ensure. 
because if they aren't, what will happen if they're not is as a seller, you'll get engaged. You can get engaged with a potential buyer without that. But what will happen is during due diligence, the buyer will find many reasons to retrade the deal when you are most vulnerable as a seller. And that's what you want to protect yourself against. So you are dead on, Joe. Having accurate, well-prepared financial statements is a fundamental it's a fundamental requirement, in my view, to protect the seller and the valuation that, that they expect. So let's go there for a second one more time. I'm not trying to take Ryan's job with asking all the questions, but I have another question, right? And that, Larry, I mean, I think, you know, when you think of privately held businesses, the business owner may be doing some things through the business that they wouldn't normally do, which then reduces their taxes, but could that also impact what they're looking at as a net result for what they're potentially selling the business? Talk about that for a little bit, if you would. Yeah, it's very, very common that uh, you got to be a little careful about this, that business owners will have certain expenses that are um, some, some relation to the business, but a lot personal. Uh, well, let me give you one that is absolutely uh, just a great example. Let's say uh, a business owner, let's say a market compensation for a, a CEO in their industry is $200,000 a year. I'm just picking a round number for discussion. But the business owner pays herself $500,000 a year in compensation. Well, you can see the difference there between the $200,000 and the $500,000 that artificially lowers the calculation of earnings that the business generates. It artificially lowers that calculation by $300,000. So that's a simple one uh, to discuss. There are, there are other items. There can be lake houses and other kinds of- Bar art. use probably. For sure. And, yep. uh, you know, even another big item to look at is uh, if uh, if the if the business requires a big real estate uh, presence, many times those business owners will own that real estate in a different entity. And then assessing what is a fair market rent, it has exactly the same impact as how I describe the compensation adjustment. So, mm -hmm. yes, you absolutely have to look at those things to make sure you're adding back extra expenses, superfluous expenses, and then you want to also right-size the rent and compensation. No, this is good stuff, gentlemen. Uh, I want to flip the coin now and look at the other side of it. And, you know, we talked about the mistakes, but let's talk about the good stuff, right? Those characteristics that make a company attractive or make them stand out to a potential buyer. Joe, what's the first one that comes to your mind that's probably the most attractive uh, uh, to a potential buyer? Ryan, the first thing I think of and I think people will look for is recurring revenue, right? If they have that revenue stream that's recurring on a day-in, day-out basis or a month-by-month month or year-by-year, somebody that sees recurring revenue is very attractive because that's that repetitive stream coming in to help run the business. And the second part then is rapid revenue growth. What's out there that's already producing revenue? And then are they tacking on more growth each and every year? Those are the first two things that come to mind. But Larry, I think piggybacking on what you just said at the end of the last question and all this comes back to financial data. It does. I mean, again, clean financial data makes it attractive. And I do want to add a little footnote to what we're talking about when we're talking about attractive 
we sell many, many, many companies that don't have recurring revenue. But what, Joe, what you're describing is exactly right. Those that do have recurring revenue, those that do have rapid revenue growth, not only are they attractive, they're also going to command very, very high multiples in the marketplace. So you can have other companies that may not have that characteristic. Arguably, you know, they're still attractive in the marketplace and there's demand, absolute great demand for them, but they're just not going to command the same kind of valuation multiple. So I want to make sure that people that have businesses that may not have recurring revenue, Joe is not saying it's not marketable. Right. He's just talking about some of the multiples that you'll see. And sometimes that's blended into the word attractive for sure. Uh, the other thing is uh, people talk about, uh, you know, we call it a moat, but some kind of economic protection around the business. And the greatest example of an economic moat from my chair is something like, uh, just think about how ubiquitous uh, Microsoft Excel is and Microsoft Word. They, Microsoft, have developed a wonderful moat, protective moat around their business because the switching costs are so high. Do you see how much training? If there were a good alternative to Word and Excel, you would be very reluctant to switch because of the training costs for all of your staff and because they've built this connectivity between most organizations because Again, they're everywhere now. So everyone uses Excel and Word and you can exchange files and data. And it's just, uh, it's, a, it's a very smart plan that Microsoft pursued. Uh, it, but creating that kind of economic moat, either through, again, switching, high switching costs, which could be training or some unique intellectual property that protects your business. If you've got a patent on a certain formula and that formula is critical to your product, Obviously, you've protected your position. Those are wonderful, wonderful features. Uh, the other thing that you want to look at uh, or that businesses want to consider as they're developing their business plans is you want to have a significantly, a significantly sized addressable market. And so what we mean by that, uh, I'll just use the Microsoft example again. You can see their addressable market is everyone in business across the globe. That's a huge addressable market as opposed to um, if you're making some, I don't know, I got to come up with something that just has a super small addressable market. But if you got some really, and this is a double-edged sword, if you got some really niche kind of business, I got, I got one. Several years ago, we worked on a company that manufactured a specific kind of equipment to repair windshields, automotive windshields. Great piece of equipment, great product, but the addressable market, the number of these machines they could sell was very limited. So all of the things being equal, even though it was a great market, it was a cool niche, the idea that it had this limited market potential, it's still an attractive business. It just has an impact on their valuation multiples. Roger that. Larry, when you guys are going through the process of, of getting ready to sell a given business, uh, you know, and you're working with those business owners on this front, 
and they're going through that review process and you're looking at, yes, what makes the business attractive, maybe any, and then on the other side, you might find some areas that you want to clean up before you approach, you know, a prospective buyer. What would be some of those areas that you find that are usually do need a little bit of some house cleaning, uh, housekeeping or, and some cleaning up of to, to get that business in a, in a more attractive phase, if you will. Yeah, most of those issues are issues all around areas of con or concentration of risk. So uh, one of the very obvious ones uh, to talk about and to understand, and most people do understand, is uh, is customer concentration. So you have if if your business if you have a business and it has more than there's no there's no bright line test here. But if you have a business that has more than 25% or 30% of your revenue with one customer, that becomes a significant challenge for business owners. Now, how do you fix that? I mean, for buyers, how do you fix that? Well, you don't go fire the customer. That's foolish. What you want to do is grow around that customer, grow with other customers so that you, over time, reduce that concentration. But not by cutting anything, just by growing out of it. Uh, another area of Larry, before you go on, let me add, yeah. right? Because a couple of years ago, I was visiting with a business owner that two out of every three dollars that they generated came from one customer. And they were thinking about selling. They were trying to plan for retirement. We talked about expanding their customer base. They weren't open to doing it. And yet they were even trying to think, well, maybe we'll just sell to that customer. But then when they turned to that customer, they weren't open to buying their business. I don't think they've still resolved that issue. So your your point is well taken, right? That too much with one entity can really put your co your company at risk along the way. Yeah, and it's very often small companies. That's how they get started. They get started with one big customer, but the, the objective right. is to grow beyond that if you can. Now, I also want to be clear, like so many other topics we've spoken about this morning, just because you have customer concentration does not mean you cannot sell the company. It just has an impact on how that transaction is ultimately structured. And right. so if you have time and the opportunity and the, you know, the runway to, to fix that or soften that issue, it's, it's an advisable step to take. Larry, and I want to. I want to also ask you a quick question, though, if a business owner is looking inward, maybe let's say at their own employees, is there a concentration risk there? Uh, 100%. And the issue there is, uh, it, it's a kind of an awkward way to say it, right? Say employee concentration, but let, let me define that for you. What that is, if you have one super salesman that's responsible for 90% of your sales, well, that's a big risk issue that any potential buyer is going to be worried about because, you know, you have the proverbial, what if they get hit by a bus kind of thought, you know, do you lose that continuity with your customers? And you also have the risk of, well, not just if they get run over by, but what if they decide they want to change teams? They want to leave. You know, what happens? Well, in today's world, most organizations do have non-solicitation agreements where you can't solicit employees. So that's some protection and something every business owner ought to think about implementing. What I've observed over the years, much to the dismay of all of my friends that are in sales, when they're super successful, and start to garner a significant chunk of the company's revenue through their sales efforts, very often the company will restrict their sales territory 
or reassign some of that sales territory. And what the company's trying to do is stay diversified. The company is trying to make sure that there's not just one person that's generating 90% of their sales, because that is a huge, huge risk issue. And, and by the way, I'm talking about sales because that's what people often focus on, but that kind of risk or concentration could be in a different area with a different business. If you've got a tech, if you've got a company that's 100% reliant on your unique technology, well, then maybe it's not the sales guy. Maybe it's your technology folks, right? So any, any area internally where there's that kind of concentration of risk should be, should be addressed. Sure thing. Well, Larry, I want to now kind of look at the other side of the table at the buyers themselves. Uh, are there any prominent buyer types, you know, if you classify them in one way, shape or form, uh, you know, how would you evaluate the different types of buyers out there? And, and what are some other exit options that, that exist for, for those business owners looking to sell? Well, I'm going to answer with something that is overly simplified because it's always a much more, you know, uh, involved answer when you get down to the detail. But from an overly simplified perspective, there's two primary buyer types from our chair. One are strategic. So that's someone that is in a business that can benefit by owning the target company strategically. Now that could be revenue synergies, it could be operating synergies, it be it could be cost savings. Many, many ways that you know strategic buyer could benefit by owning the target. So that's one group, strategic buyers. And then you have this other category we call financial buyers. Private equity groups is what most people would think about uh, when they think about financial buyers. Now these are these are organizations that have amassed a significant amount of money with the pure objective of buying a private company. And so they are driven mostly by financial returns. And it's a, the, the private equity groups and financial community provide, it's a different kind of a transaction. I will tell you, it's a wonderful transaction for many business owners, because in the, in the case of the financial buyers, when they're buying up what's called a platform, making a platform acquisition, it provides an opportunity for the business owner to both take chips off the table, harvest some of that value, but also leave money in their company as it pursues that next stage of growth and, and benefit financially when that next stage happens. It's really a, a, neat, a neat alternative. And Larry, let me piggyback on that. We just had a business owner do that in the last year as well, similar to what you just laid out in the financial buyer. And sure enough, they've got chips still in their own company and in the in the company that bought them, they now have chips there. And so they've put one big group together and they're moving together collectively to the next stage. And, you know, they've got timelines and goals, uh, perspectives, but they're all pretty excited to to have partnered up in that in that regard. Um, 100%. And it did, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Joe. No, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say it, it sort of reinforces where we started today when we talked about why business owners pursue transactions and part of it's because they want to de-risk their portfolio. Well, the minute they mm -hmm. go through this private equity leverage recap, uh, but the, the purchase with a financial buyer, they do because they harvest a big chunk of that value and they put it in a diversified portfolio. And then so that their exposure to their company went from 80% of their net worth maybe down to 10 or 15% of their net worth, which is a much more comfortable component of their overall asset allocation. Absolutely. 
Ryan, you know, there are three other ways that, um, and some we've even talked about how they can diversify or other buyer types, right? ESOP, Employee Stock Ownership Plan. We've done a whole podcast on ESOPs, right? That's where you're selling to your employees and you still may own a piece of the business and the go forward entity, uh, or you can get out completely, but even then you're still going to be a shareholder to some extent. So I won't go into great detail there, right? There is the IPO route where you go the public market route, and you can also sell to management. And I've seen that where you have a key group of employees that are younger, they've helped you grow the business, the owner's ready to step out and then sell to management who's then going to lead the next generation of leadership. And so there are three other ways that Larry was talking about, right? He's talking about strategic and financial. So there are three other ways that we're also touching on here along the way. No, this is good stuff, guys. I, I want to throw you a curveball now, Larry. Uh, it's an open-ended question, if you will. Uh, look, we've all heard timing is everything, right? Not only in life, but of course in business and your financials. So when is the best time to sell a company? Or better yet, what would you say uh, What would you say really it, does the timeline look like for actually selling? How long does it take? How long can it take for a business owner to sell? I know it's open-ended, but, uh, and a bit of a curveball, but is well, there, is there a rule of thumb you can put on that? For sure. I, I'm going to answer the second question first, because that is one that's a little easier to answer. Uh, the time frame to do, in my view, to do it right, the time frame is between nine and 12 months. From the minute you engage a firm to represent you for sale until the money is wired to your account. So it's an end-to-end -end measurement timeframe. It's about, it's nine to 12 months. It can be a little shorter, but it's not gonna be substantially shorter in today's market, uh, but it could be a little bit shorter. And, and by the way, it's mostly gonna be that nine to 10 months, even though I said nine to 12. In terms of, when is the best time to sell? Uh, I will tell you the best time to sell is, and I'll go through what I view as the features of the best time, but it's also the very hardest time to sell for a business owner because the very best time to sell is when the economy's hot, when your industry's hot, and when your company's growing like a weed. That's the best time to sell because from a you got to think about it from a buyer's perspective, that's when they're going to perceive your business as a low risk. When they see your business, when they perceive it as low risk, low risk means lower required returns, which turns into higher valuation. So that's why I answer it that way. You know, it's going again, economy's in good shape, the uh, industry you're in is in good shape, and your company's growing like a weed. Larry, let's pause there for a second. I want you to expand on it, right? Because I also think, and I've seen this, it's hard for business owners to sell at that point because they keep thinking things are going to keep going up for them as well, right? So mentally and emotionally, they keep thinking it's going to get even better financially. They do. They do 100%. And, and by the way, you remember we just got done talking about that private equity sponsored leverage recap that where their financial buyers buying a platform. That whole transaction alleviates this 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 challenge that business owners have because they want to they want to they want to de-risk, but they still love their business. And the private equity thing lets them do that. It lets them have both sides of that equation, have their cake and eat it too. And that's why I like that transaction for a lot of situations that private equity sponsored leverage recap uh, because it just 
it, it just does help you split. And I would also say this about the right time to sell. You really do need to sell when the market's ready, which sometimes may not be perfectly aligned. It might be a little early for some people uh, in terms of when they're personally ready, because if you're personally ready, but the market's shut down, you can't sell it. Now, it's very rarely really shut down. What really happens is values decline to a level where you probably shouldn't sell it. So it's never really just completely shut down. But take advantage of when the market's frothy. And the market has been very, it's been very seller friendly over, I'd say, the past five years and continues to be seller friendly. You know, gentlemen, as we're bringing our conversation to a head here, I think the bottom line of this whole discussion for any business owner out there that's listening or watching today's episode, uh, they're thinking to themselves, look, I want to get the most out of my business that I can possibly get. While, like you had mentioned, Larry, also maybe looking into opportunities to de-risk their, you know, the level of their portfolio that's involved in that business. My question, I'll, I'll throw it over to you, Joe, and then Larry, of course, we'll get some color from you on this, but how could a business owner ultimately just maximize that value they they can get from their company throughout this transaction let's let's leave our audience with just some final takeaways on this front yeah ryan let's go back right statistically seven out of ten never sell four out of five that do sell have a regret ryan if you do that math if you whittle it down that means only four to five percent of all companies sell without a regret 12 months later that's really important and so many business owners think I can handle this or I can take care of that. We want to help them have that regretless transaction. So how do you how do you do that? Right? You have that regretless decision, regretless transaction. Owners really need to know what they want out of the deal. Do they want to preserve the entity with their name on it? Do they want to preserve the entity for key employees? Do they want to preserve it for all employees? Do they want to maximize the dollar amount? Do they want to maximize the net dollar amount, right? Is it a gross dollar amount? Is it a net dollar amount? They need to know exactly what they want to get out of the deal. The more clear they are with what they want, it's going to be easier to give them what they want. I think that's so important because they'll talk around things and then they'll say they want everything. They, there's a checklist of things that we'll work through with them and give them what they want, but they need to be clear and understand where some trade-offs come in. Larry, what are your thoughts? Well, I, it's what you said is hundred percent true. Uh, absolutely. People need to know what their objective is and their objective needs to get them, you know, the, the ultimate transaction has to put them in a financial place where they're comfortable. So they need a real solid financial advisor who's focused on this part of the market to help them walk through that. For my chair, in terms of just purely maximizing value in the transaction, this is going to retrace some steps we've already taken today. Make sure your financial statements are solid because two operating guys, you know, a buyer and a seller that are operationally oriented, they can get along, they decide they want to do a deal. But I promise you, when it comes time to what the buyer's going to pay, they go back and talk to their chief financial officer. And that person's going to be focused on the numbers, no matter what the other strategic benefits are. It only, always, almost always comes back to those numbers. So get your financial house in order. Those risk items we talked about, customer concentration, employee concentration, make it clean up as much of that as you reasonably can. 
there's some businesses where you just can't get away from it. So you just deal with it. But if you can reasonably clean that up, clean it up. And then what I would consider the, for all my value, I, I, you know, I started professional life doing business valuation at one of the very large accounting firms before I started selling companies. And everybody's got their opinion about value. Everybody. And what I've come to find out and observe over the 30 years I've been helping people sell companies is there is no substitute for competition when you're selling your company. Different buyers will always perceive the risk in your business differently, and you've got to go somewhat broadly to buyers to find those that embrace what you're doing, love your team the most, and perceive the lowest risk. And that buyer can perceive that with your company or could have perceived that with the prior transaction they did and not perceive it with your company. So anyone's ability to absolutely predict which buyers are going to love you the most is hard. And that's why, you know, our, the hallmark of what we believe is competition among buyers is what ultimately drives you to that maximum value. Fantastic. Fantastic. Appreciate that insight, Larry. And and Joe and Larry both mentioned how beneficial it can be to be working with the right team that to help you through this very complicated process so that you can navigate it and maximize that value on the back end of this transaction. Joe, for anybody out there in the audience that, you know, they're hearing that message, it's resonating with them, and they're interested in maybe reaching out to you and your team to open up a dialogue around that, what would be the best way they can get in touch with you? Yeah, Ryan, have them give us a call, shoot us an email. We have some tools to take them through the initial steps of engagement. There's no cost in doing that, right? And we can begin to have the conversation, even if they're not ready today, but they think they want to be in the next six months, 12 months, five years, whatever it may be, have a conversation with us when we begin to say, okay, here's what we think you need to do. And we can do that. And that could even include engaging Larry Starks and his team at Waterview. Larry, if they want to contact you tell them about it yeah uh you know oftentimes what people need is some reference point to start the discussion right joe some idea about valuation um and so we can certainly help with that uh joe's team can help with that and we're very collaborative on that end with joe's team so yes getting started with some kind of value thought and running that through some kind of a financial plan is absolutely the smartest thing to in, in terms of getting started and fantastic we can, yep oh, sorry go ahead larry no no i'm done <laughs> all right here I'll, I'll cut that out but all right fantastic appreciate that gentlemen well hey look i know you both are busy guys you've got clients to serve so we'll let you get back to doing that but uh appreciate you both carving some time out jumping into this pretty uh you know hefty topic surrounding selling your business maximizing that value along the way making sure that you're mitigating any risks or mistakes a lot a lot of good thought and value here in today's discussion so uh, appreciate you both and uh, larry we hope to maybe have you on another one down the road yeah, thank you very much, Ryan. Appreciate it. Joe, good to see you this morning. Ryan, good to see you. Larry, good to see you. Thanks for your time, bud. Appreciate it. Fantastic, gentlemen. Well, hey, look, we want to take one final moment, as always, and thank you, and that's our audience, for jumping, stopping by and being with us here on the show today. If you did take anything away from today's discussion, you benefited from it in any way, shape, or form, make sure you hit that subscribe button then on whichever platform you checked us out on today. That way you never miss out on a future conversation where Joe, myself, maybe one of our esteemed guests dive into a, you know, a unique wealth management topic so that you and yours can come out better for it on the other side. 
But for Joe and Larry, I'm Ryan. We're going to go ahead and say so long today, but we appreciate you stopping by and being with us on Your Money and a Cup of Joe. This presentation is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice or the basis for making any investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed may not be those of UBS Financial Services Incorporated. UBS Financial Services Incorporated does not verify and does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of the information presented. This material is made available for use by CEG. Neither UBS Financial Services Incorporated nor any of its employees provide tax or legal advice. You should consult with your personal tax or legal advisor regarding your personal circumstances. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients, UBS Financial Services Incorporated offers investment advisory services in its capacity as an SEC registered investment advisor and brokerage services in its capacity as an SEC registered broker dealer. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways, and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. It is important that clients understand the ways in which we conduct business, that they carefully read the agreements and disclosures that we provide to them about the products or services we offer. For more information, please review the PDF document at UBS.com slash relationship summary. UBS Financial Services Incorporated is a subsidiary of UBS AG, member FINRA, member SIPC. Joe Kaleo at Kaleo Wealth Management Group, UBS Financial Services Incorporated. Office address 200 West Highway 6, Suite 400 in Waco, Texas, 76712.